You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Alrighty, well, welcome to Like Flint Radio. I'm your host, GK. I'm coming to you live from my bush hut studio in Queensland, Australia. Today, our guest is Graham Veal. He's the author of New Atheism, A Survival Guide. But just before we bring Graham on and get to talk to him and get to know him a bit, I want to welcome my co-host all the way from the mother city in South Africa, Andy Tay. Greetings, Andy. Thank you very much. Sunny Bornani, Punjani, anything else you'd like to know. There we go. Okay, well, I won't be interpreting that. I'll probably need Cruz here to help me with that one. But um, uh, let's bring Graham on. Um, uh, welcome to Like Flint Radio, Graham Veal. Good morning here. I'm not sure where it is where you guys are, but it's good morning here. So how are you? Yeah, it is morning here in Cape Town, but I think GK is past that. He's kind of beyond us yes, I'm, at this point. I, I'm in, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm in the evening now. Uh, Graham, um, you're in Northern Ireland, aren't you? Yes, that's right, in Northern Ireland, in uh, Armagh City, okay. which is supposed to be where St. Patrick is buried, ah. but then he's buried everywhere in Ireland. <laughs> oh, so so the, the, the legend is shared amongst many cities there. It's shared amongst many, many cities and many towns, but we have a cathedral built over where we think he's buried, so we win. Okay. <laughs> well, as long as it's a very prestigious building compared to the others, you probably do. Um, Graham, before we get into the details about your book and, and what this show is about, um, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, please? Well, I teach religious education in a high school in Armagh. So it's a, it's a very small school, about 250 students, aged 11 to 16. And I've been doing that for about six, 16, 17 years now. Um, I'm now old enough to meet uh, parents uh, in the, that I taught at parents' evenings, which is a lovely feeling. Wow. Um, but I've been doing that for about 16 years. Um, I studied theology so that I could teach religious education. And uh, during that education, I became friendly with a guy called David Glass. He's written a book, Atheism's New Clothes. Um, so David and I had an interest in defending the faith and explaining the faith to people from a secular mindset. We've been come concerned that the church maybe isn't as good as it could be and explaining it, the faith to people who haven't been raised in Christian circles. And so David and I, a few years back, set up Saints and Skeptics. So www.saintsandskeptics.org, it's a website that we have set up to try and defend Christianity to secularists who might reject it, to try and help the church explain Christianity to secularists. Uh, and as part of that, the project we we, you know, we both wrote books david's woods atheism's new clothes and mine was new atheism a survival guide so david's would be the more um, david's an academic and his would be a more sort of academic approach to the subject mine would be aimed a little bit more at um students uh and people who work with them right and so is that the reason why you wrote this book graham for uh people who aren't perhaps academically minded but you could still defend christianity yeah, I think the the aim was to have a book that was you know, fairly quick to read. Um, you know, it's I think it's about twenty four thousand words. It's not a huge read in in terms of time commitment, but to try to explain to people who really work with people around about I would say about eighteen, nineteen, you know, people who have maybe read a little bit 
Um, you know, would maybe be a book that I might offer to some of my students who are maybe 16 and who are quite interested in reading. I wouldn't offer it to, to lower than that just yet unless they were really, really into reading. But really for teenagers, because this is the market that, that uh, new atheists like Richard Dawkins and guys like that aim at as, as teenagers. Uh, and I think it's also though for people who work with them or for people who you know maybe just want a, a quick read to see what a Christian response to new atheism would be. Uh, so it's sort of aimed at around about that age, that age group or people who work with that age group. Right. And so for, for those of us who don't know, can you give us a quick overview of what new atheism is? Right. New atheism really came out after it became popular after 9-11. Uh, most people will have heard of Richard Dawkins. Yes, I mean, if you're yes. on Twitter, you you can't miss him. Uh, and, and that's very much part of his marketing strategy. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins will say incredibly crazy things, but that's who his name is known. That's part of the strategy, to my mind. Neatism really came to life with the book uh, The God Delusion. Sam Harris uh, would be another academic in America who, who wrote Letter to a Christian Nation, uh, which sort of laid the ground. Daniel Dennett um, would be another guy who was involved. Uh, and the fourth horseman was of the new atheism would have been Christopher Hitchens, uh, God is Not Great. So those would be the, the main new atheist books, if you like. But new atheism really, to my mind, began online before this with atheist websites, uh, atheist blogs. There was a large market there, if you like, waiting for these books. So new atheism really will, uh, there's several differences to my mind between the atheism of the new atheism and what came before that. I think the first difference would be these online communities. There's a very strong sense of identity. Now, they would tend to call themselves the atheist movement rather than new atheists uh, because you can only stay new for so long. It's been going to go for about a decade. But they call them the new atheist, new atheist movement. There would be a strong sense of identity gathered through these online communities. But in terms of what they believe about faith or what they believe about Christianity, uh, they believe that faith is always irrational and that it's always blind that it always disregards reason and evidence, and that therefore faith is dangerous uh, because faith can become fanaticism as easily as it can become Quakerism. You know, faith is dangerous. And so faith is always blind. Faith, therefore, is dangerous. Therefore, faith really needs to be opposed and, if possible, eradicated. Now, not through violent means. Um, they would see this through education, but also through aggressive political action. So you'll see, you know, court cases and things like this, and also through aggressive rhetoric. And this would be maybe a third difference is that they would, because faith is irrational, you cannot reason with religious people. So therefore, what you have to do is mock and ridicule religious people. You have to make them feel the pressure. You have to make them feel uh that they need to change if they're to be accepted by an educated society. Uh, and, and mainly this strategy is used to uh, not only knock religious people off their stride, but to make anybody who would consider becoming religious uh, step away from religion, mm -hmm. step away from religious groups. So it's used almost to embarrass those people in the middle. And then finally, there would be something that I would call dogmatic scientism or just a particular attitude towards science so that would really characterize the new atheism you know the online communities the attitude to faith 
uh, and this rhetorical strategy of using uh, of using ridicule and mockery uh, rather than rig- rigorous argument. Andy? Actually, that's covered a couple of my questions, really, but that's very good. And the one thing I was going to bring up with regard to a new atheist and also just as kind of, uh, like you say, their bully tactics... But one of the observations you make is that even though they accuse Christians of having blind faith, their own belief in the powers of science by essentially wanting to replace religious thought altogether also borders on blind faith. And so they are guilty of what they accuse us of being, it seems. Yeah, I mean, because a new atheist hearing that say, oh, no, we have lots of evidence that science works well. Yes, of course, you have lots of evidence that science is very good at investigating the physical world. But where their blind faith comes in is that, or their blind trust, is that science is the only way of finding out the answer to every important question. Now, I mean, that's not found in any scientific result. So if somebody says, you know, oh, science is the only way, you should only believe something if science demonstrates that it's true, well, science hasn't demonstrated that. You know, science hasn't demonstrated that science is the only way of finding out the answer to every question. You know, questions about right and wrong, or questions about good and evil, or questions about you know the meaning of the universe. Or, you know, science has never demonstrated it's, it, it, it's the only way to approach que- those sorts of questions. Uh, and therefore, there's just this blind faith that science is the, that science is the best way because they don't present really any argument for that. They just say, well, science has been very, very successful. You point out that science has changed its mind a lot. Uh, and then they change the topic and say, well, religion doesn't change its mind a lot. You know, the, But... Really, there's no evidence for this, this this faith that science is the only way to approach the world. It's the only way. Yeah. Um, you know, Christians are more than happy to say, yes, science is very, very successful. Science is very, very good. We should, you know, we should you know, critically accept what, what science teaches us. But that doesn't mean that you don't realize that science can change its mind. That doesn't mean that you can't ask questions uh, about a particular scientific theory, which is you know, every but that's universally accepted. Yeah. But Christians would say, but listen, that's not the only way. You know, you, you have to include science within your world and just be a bit more broad minded in your approach to the world is really what we would be saying. Right. You basically say that there's two types of explanations for making sense of the world. The one is the scientific explanation and the other is this agent explanation, which is where theists would say there is an agent to what has happened in the world. And so do you want to give a little brief for those who might not know exactly what those are, the differences? Because obviously you've got the new atheist or even atheism who kind of says science takes over God. But we are saying that there's there's more to it. Yes. I mean, uh, uh, the illustration that I use in the book, um, I don't know if... I don't know if you guys have seen the film The Iron Giant. Um, it was made in the 90s. It's a very good animated film. This is how you tell our children. Yes. Um, you sit and watch these films and you can pretend, oh, I'm, I'm watching it with the kids. But you love it. Just, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> gives you an excuse to watch kids' films. <laughs> but the, the idea is The Iron Giant uh, is a robot that's obviously been sent to invade Earth, but it's, it's damaged on the way in. Uh, the mechanics in its brain get uh, a little bit of a dent uh, and therefore it becomes very friendly. Now, it becomes friends with the young boy, Garth. Um, uh, and up until this stage, you can, you could scientifically explain all the Iron Giant's choices, if you like. 
Um, you know, you could see that there's a dent in the brain. It's following its programming, but the programming is going a little bit kilter. So there's a scientific explanation there in terms of mechanics. You know, a physicist could come in and say, you know, this gear is hitting that gear or this charge is going in that direction. So those are your scientific explanations. The military attack the agent towards the end of the film. Um, the dent gets popped out. The original programming kicks in and the agent begins to destroy and attack the town and attack the military. Uh, until his young friend, the boy, comes to the Iron Giant and says, right, you don't have to be like this, you can choose. Now, this is something we all, it's almost a cliche now that in, in, in films and in literature. You, you've got a choice here, you can make a choice. And at that stage, the Giant's got a choice. Do I go with my friendship, which I developed, or do I go with my military programming, the events in my, you know, inside my big computer brain? And the, the Giant makes a choice according to purposes. You know, see, you know, a scientist couldn't predict, if you like, what was going to happen there. The giant, there's something over and above what's happening in the brain. And that's what you call an agent explanation. Now, agent explanations are, are, are really, really very, very common. I mean, uh, the, the other really easy way to, to demonstrate this is if you want to say, well, you know, why am I having a, you know, why is the kettle on? Why is there water boiling in the kettle? We can give you two explanations. You know, we can talk about, you know, um, the heat, we, what happens when you put heat to water and what the boiling point of water is and what the laws of physics are about heat. You give that scientific explanation or you could say the kettle's on because I want to make myself a cup of coffee. You know, I, that's your purpose. And Dawkins would say, well, that's just something happening in your brain wanting, you know, wanting coffee. But the point of the, the reason I use the iron jant is to try and say, well, no, there's, there's more to us than just events in our brain. We also make choices. We also decide between not according to things that are determined by our brain, but we all realize that we, you know, we have purposes, we, we have desires, we have choices that can't be reduced to events in the brain. Right. So you've got two types of explanation there, scientific and, and the agent. One that goes and talks about purposes, one that talks about uh, science and mechanics. And so when it comes to the universe then, you know, when it comes to things like the laws of nature, I mean, science depends on the laws of nature to give explanations. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it presupposes that we can understand this universe and that there's material in it. And the question the Christian says is, well, look, but why do we have this universe with these laws and these objects in it that obey the laws? That's right. you, know, science, you know, science has to come in and, and, and already works with what's there. But where did all that come from? You know, science really can't explain why there is a set of laws and objects for those laws to, to, to operate on. But Christians can say, but look, what if there was an agent? What if there was somebody who had a reason for it being there? Then you've got an explanation. Then you've got an explanation for that. So that's why it's important to realize that science you know, doesn't have all the answers. Now, that doesn't just, you know, okay, you can go and have a conversation about does that agent explanation make good sense? And you can have all those conversations. But what you can't do is say, well, I'll only believe what science tells me. Because as soon as you do that, you're closing your mind mm -hmm. to possible answers as to why the universe is here. Yeah. If you say, you know, the universe is just there and that's it, and I'm only accepting what science shows me, you're declaring your own mind to be closed. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of blind faith that they caricature Christians as having. So does that mean, Graham, that we could, we could say that, um, in a way, uh, atheism itself is a belief? Oh, yeah, atheism is most definitely a belief. Mm. Um, now, this is a, a, you'll see this meme come up time and time again on Twitter. You know, Christianity is a belief, but atheists don't have to defend atheism because atheism isn't a belief, it's a lack of a belief. 
to which you say, you just reply, well, is atheism true? Now, if they say it's, yes, I believe atheism is true, well, then that's a belief. If they say, well, no, I don't believe atheism is true, well, then you say, well, what are you, you, know, what are you telling me for? <laughs> you know, where's this argument coming from? Yeah. Either you believe atheism is true, you don't. That's right. So yeah. you've got to believe there. You believe, you, 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 I mean, this is, and it's extraordinary. Um, if you talk to somebody on Twitter or on uh, Facebook or on uh, you know, blogs, any of these areas, once they declare that atheism is not a belief, they refuse to accept any argument to the contrary. Right. It's just like, it's like repeating a, a creed. Um, and this is where it becomes, I think at that stage you have to shift the conversation to say, do you realize you're not listening to reason? It's not that you're, you're just getting, tend to get very mad, very aggressive. You're not listening to me. And it, it's to try and turn the conversation round at that point mm -hmm. to somebody who's in the atheist movement uh, and say, now listen, you're just not really listening here. Is this not what you accuse me of? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, th that means uh, it's, it shuts down conversation, it closes minds, but yes, this idea that atheism isn't a belief is just dreadful. Um, I mean, I don't really know of any academic philosopher writing in philosophy journals that would say atheism isn't a belief. I mean, I, I just don't know that anybody would say that. I don't know where it comes from. You know, are you saying that Richard Dawkins wrote a book about something he didn't believe? Um, you know, it, it's insane. Going back to something that um, Andy alluded to earlier in your book about, uh, you know, the uh, the idea of um, creating barbs, like re really going after the Christians, in other words. Um, when we ask atheist questions like you've just talked about, I know in your book, because Andy has told me a fair bit about it, that one of their tactics is the avoidance of answering our questions. I would say that we also could suffer a bit of that um, because many of us are unprepared, like we don't know what the answers are. Do you think that's true um, to say that in this, I call, I think we're in a postmodern era and I think many of us who attend churches are, are really don't really know how to defend the gospel or to defend the scriptures and, and or how to be apologists and obviously that's what people like yourself and your website are about but do you think that's also true that we we should be prepared with an answer yeah i think we automatically we are all apologists uh, peter morrow would write as a guy right. who'd write on our website and he's a he's an uh, uh, an article on the science and skeptics website that says like it or not everyone's an apologist because in any conversation that you have with somebody who is not a christian Sooner or later, they're going to say to you, well, why should I believe what you're saying? Why should I believe that this is true? Now, the second that you give any answer to that question, you have become an apologist. You're giving a reason for the hope that's within you. You're giving an argument for believing what you believe is true. Even if you say you just have to have faith, you just have to trust it. Well, you've given an answer. That's your defense. You have defended your faith. I just don't think you've given a very good answer. Uh, and I don't think it's the answer that the Gospels or the Book of Acts would have given. So Paul begins the Book of Romans, which is, you know, his big treatise in the Bible is about is what he believes. And he begins that with a big critique of, of paganism. He, you know, Romans 1, he says, listen, you know, obviously this world is ordered towards a particular purpose. And obviously it couldn't be created by the gods. I mean, obviously you can't worship something that uh, the creators of this universe as, as idols. That makes no sense. And so Paul was quite happy to critique unbelief. Um, and this happens again in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, and the Gospels go out of their way, and the book of Acts goes out of its way, and First Peter goes out of its way to talk about eyewitness testimony. 
um, to talk about evidence for the, for Jesus. You know, you should believe this because there's eyewitnesses. There's eyewitnesses that you can talk to. Um, and it encouraged people who are reading the epistles to go and talk to eyewitnesses, to go and, you know, go and confirm this. You know, if you don't believe it, go confirm. So, you know, the Bible is full of defenses of, of, of what it says is true. The Bible is, you know, from beginning to end, it's full of arguments for its truth. And I think that just if you believe the Bible, you know, if you believe the Bible is true, then you're just going to have to get to grips with the fact that you have to let the Bible speak for itself. And that means defending it. That means or not even so much if I'm acting more like a prosecutor. You know, you're going to have to present arguments as to why people should believe this. So, you know, like it or not, we all have to defend our faith. Uh, like it or not, the Bible is full of arguments uh, for its own truth. And the apostles uh, used arguments and, and argued for for what they believed in. Uh, and we just have to do the same. Um, but I do think there's a problem in churches in that we, we do try to shy away from that. That's right. And that's why I brought that up, because I know that um, you, you say that sometimes the atheists will try and avoid the difficult questions. And I think sometimes we do as well. And to be honest, I think it's because many of us don't really know the answers or we're not confident enough to defend. We may know what the answers are, but we're not confident enough to get out there and defend it. But but anyway, that's that's just why I brought that one up. Switching gears slightly, do you think with the, the rise of atheism, could we put it down to, I know there'd be several factors, but is a lot of it to do with the media? Like you've mentioned the movie, you know, movies, but I just don't, I just know when I watch a lot of movies these days, you can see these atheistic themes running through movies and, and television shows. So how important has the media, and let's just say television, uh, in the last 60 or 60 plus years, how important has that been to the rise of atheism? Um, I think, yeah, I think that atheists, while they are fortunately quite small, they do tend to turn up in, in academia, they do tend to turn up in the media, and that's because they do tend to come from a certain socioeconomic class. You know, there, there's there's a definite class thing going on here. The media would be important here in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, you know, BBC would be, you know, the BBC Radio Ulster would be a big thing in Northern Ireland. And there's a, there's a definite, if not exactly atheist agenda, I wouldn't quite stretch that far. There's certainly a very anti-evangelical agenda. There's a very, there's a, you know, we, we really want to uh, poke the church with a stick on certain you know, touchy issues, you know, abortion, homosexuality, all those issues that make the liberal secular conscience um, uneasy. Mm-hmm. We're going to go after evangelicals on that sort of issue. So there's a, a definite agenda, so far as I can see, from the BBC there. They'd obviously deny that and want to say that we don't have agendas. But if you listen to the debates that come on and who they bring on and the sort of criticisms that we're facing here in Northern Ireland, and again, when our most popular newspaper would be the Belfast Telegraph, it would be the same. So we're almost portrayed as a, a sort of a, a boogeyman at times in here. Um Internationally, yes. I mean, there would be, I think, cinema to some extent, 
possibly you know television as well. Um, certain celebrity atheist Stephen Fry would be the obvious one that comes to mind. I don't know if this is his Australian South Africa, but you know the Stephen Fry's rant against God on the problem of evil on YouTube. Yeah. Um, using celebrity atheists to try and promote the cause and to try to make it seem as if well everybody who's got a bit of common sense will be an atheist, right. or at least will be agnostic or have real doubts about their faith. I think more slightly more sinister than that because it's a little more difficult. To, they don't say this quite out loud, but there's a sort of a, an assumption that, well, okay, it's not that we're promoting atheism, but the media will say, well, look, you can have your beliefs so long as you don't actually mention them out loud, so long as you don't actually bring them into public. So you could believe that somebody you know, needs to repent and believe the gospel. You can believe all those things, but we don't want you saying that outside your church doors. You can say it in church if you want. Uh, and and we, we we don't really want you advertising that on posters outside your church because, you know, that might offend people who are walking past. Uh, and it's this idea that we don't cause offence. You're in a pluralist society. You're in a multicultural society. You don't want to cause offence. You don't want to uh, raise the tension any. You don't want to um, offend people. Therefore, please keep your beliefs to yourself um, because belief at the end of the day is all about blind faith. Belief's all about uh, an irrational faith and you shouldn't be bringing that into the public square you know you want to believe something irrational you can do that but don't bring that into the public square and uh, that i think is very very prominent in the media you know somebody can certainly mention a character might be uh, a religious person but this is always seen as a source of private comfort it's not seen as anything that uh, affects how they do their job or that leads them to have any controversial opinions or, or anything like that or a religious character will never try to convert somebody else towards their religion you know it's just a very private thing and you know i don't know if you, if you watch blue bloods which would be um uh it's a tv series about an american cop an american tv series about a new york family of cops who are very very catholic but again the catholicism is entirely a matter of private comfort for that family it is not anything that makes any difference to how they live their lives you know they, they sleep with people before they're married to them you know they do all the same things that people who aren't catholic do but it's just that they go to they go to mass on a sunday uh, and this is seen as being pro-religion no, it's not. You know, that's religion as a hobby. That's not religion as, as something that makes a meaningful difference to somebody's life. So if I can just take us back to something that we were discussing earlier, um, and Andy, I know that you've got a quote. Um, it, I think it would be appropriate to read that quote from Stephen Fry because I also know that, Andy, you're, I wouldn't say a fan, but you, you watch a lot of Stephen Fry, don't you? So you know a little bit about yeah. him. I'm a great fan of BBC in general, actually. And yes. But the one thing, just as um, as you were saying there, Graham, is that a lot of comedians that I find, particularly on BBC, I don't see it so much elsewhere. They seem to be quite proud of the fact that they're atheist. 
and um, uh, you know just a little bit like you you mentioned in your book you know how they're very strong on this kind of ridicule of anything other than that and they seem to take quite a lot of delight in it and in in actually ridiculing people and making them the butt of uh, their jokes um, and they are generally uh, American Christians I've noticed yeah but there's something about Stephen Fry that I, I really enjoy but it's really difficult where you kind of have this love-hate relationship because you think well you know someone like that who is considered to be incredibly intelligent um, mm-hmm. for him to say something well let's just let me just read a bit of his rant which was the other day I believe it was on RTE television um, the meaning of life and it was probably about a month ago maybe around the beginning of February where part of what he said he just said why should I respect a precious mean-minded stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain and that if God created the universe he was quite clearly a maniac totally mm-hmm. selfish and we have to spend our lives on our knees thanking him what kind of God would do that he said um, and he says the moment you banish him life becomes simpler purer cleaner and more worth living <laughs> which yeah. I found quite interesting yeah um, that's new if you speak yeah yeah that's very, very much, much so. dog and speak yeah so it was really really interesting and I think it also kind of goes to the whole idea of you know when we talk about agency um, there was one comment in your book which I thought was really true and that was just that without belief in agency we cannot hold people accountable for their actions um, and here Stephen Fry is going well the moment you vanish God life becomes purer <laughs> cleaner that's right and I just thought you know I mean well then to what do we hold a person accountable because there's no actual higher law anymore if you banish God in my opinion yeah that's that's a big problem with with Fry's argument there is you know what, what exactly is it that we you know what is it that you're putting in its place I mean how do you go hold God morally responsible you know where do your morals come from um, right. is there free will without God he, he simply doesn't answer any of those particular questions at all but I think a big thing that comes out in it is that he just has a real problem with the idea of God the idea yeah. that he has to you know why should I have to bow the knee to somebody who isn't me you know who isn't or somebody right. like me you know and, right. and also this idea life becomes pure cleaner that was very much Dawkins speak that at that stage he's, do you think actually tend to shy away from the problem of evil um, you know, they don't like things that make people feel down. You know, they're very, right. very happy, upbeat. But Stephen Fry comes out with that, and the, the incredible thing that I find about it is that he just states the problem of evil. You know, right? There's, if there's no good God, why is there suffering? That's really what he said, and then he yeah. just assumed that there's there's no answer. He, he, he just didn't even. Now, not only did he assume that <laughs> that no human being could give him an answer. His assumption would be that you know God couldn't give him an answer. That there's just nobody as smart as he is, uh, and therefore yeah. nobody could provide me with an answer. Um, but the Bible, from beginning to end, is really you know again, it's continually addressing this question of to why is there suffering? Why does you know right. why does God allow moral evil to exist? Why did God not just stamp it out? Well, it would have involved stamping human beings out. So right. largely, what you're asking then is why are there human beings and 
I was particularly poor. I mean, we have a number of resources on our site actually dealing with Stephen Fry, but he just sort of really stated the problem of evil, which mm. uh, every religion acknowledges, and then just assumed, well, there's no answer. Well, you know. Yeah, and also to assume that there's no responsibility or accountability on our part, because that's the thing that comes across. It's all God. God must have done this. We can't possibly be responsible for, you know, causing harm to another another person or something like that. There's just no sense of, you know, responsibility. So let's get rid of God, and then it will all be fine. It will all be better. Yeah. People all of a sudden are going to be better people. It doesn't make sense at all in my mind. No. I yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, so, I think he, he, mentions, um, he mentions river blindness. And he misdescribes it. He t- talks about a worm that you know eats its way into a child's eye and then eats its way out, right. which yeah. isn't how you acquire river blindness. That's not how it happens. That he, so he misdescribes it. But then he also assumes that that's, um, that's something that human beings have got no responsibility for. And the fact that people are forced into areas to, to farm, where you know you you get this disease, and if you and if you if you look at river blindness, the Jimmy Carter Foundation does a lot of work with this. And if you talk to the people who are there, um. You know, why do you stay near an area where you know you're going to get a disease that in later life could lead you to be blind, that could give you you know um, very hard, um, itchy, irritated skin? You know, not not like a mild rash. This is you know you would see people actually scraping themselves with pots, hmm. you know, broken shards of pottery to try and you know ease the itching. Gosh. And but um, I mean, you talk to families that are there. You know, well, we have stayed here for generations because this is the only place we can get good farmland. Um, this is the only place where we can get any sort of future for our family. We know there's a risk of blindness, but we'll take the risk because this is just the only way we can have a future. Wow. Uh, and so the idea there that we have no responsibility at all for river blindness, it's just false. So first of all, we says, why would God create a universe where these particular bugs exist? Well, he didn't actually. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the bug that you're describing doesn't exist. Wow. You've exaggerated however blindness works uh, and then secondly you've assumed that human government i mean there's enough there is enough farmland to go around in the world there's enough arable land to feed us all peacefully if we could learn to agree to live peacefully but we won't and so therefore that leads to war therefore that leads to suffering and even when there's not war going on we are having to distribute our land in very unjust unfair and unkind ways and so he just dodges the whole issue of human responsibility completely and passes that right back on to God. You know, there were other examples that he could have used, but you know, that one in particular, I thought just, well, look, you're just, um, and even when we come to things like cancer, I mean, if we look at our environment, if we look at, you know, pollution and factors like that, you know, that, that, that does seem to have a role in cancer. Not all the cases, but, but certainly, the, so even when it comes to things like disease, or earthquake, or you know, people having to farm on, on volcanic ground, you know, create because it's good. But you know, they get people actually park their farms on volcanoes, um, and and that, and that leads to to death and destruction. Uh, you know, so it, it, you know, the humans have a, some sort of responsibility here because we don't, you know, we're we're certainly not making any effort to make life easier for people. Right. We're we're really not making the efforts that we could make to make life easier for people who have to farm and work in very dangerous brutal environments just to get by um and, and to be honest it's, it tends to be the more advanced nations that are at fault here you know we're insisting on a cheap you know cheap milk cheap bread cheap everything else and it's the other nations that have to suffer yeah 
when you really look at what new atheists say, actually it doesn't really make sense in terms of just life in general even. Um, you talk in your book about the intricacies of just the eye, you know, just what it must be to make up just that one thing and all the That's different right, kind yeah. of, you know, transitions that would have had to take place by essentially a mistake, <laughs> just an accident, yep. you know, to actually just get to the most basic cellular level. And here we're talking about God who created all of that and more, and he just wants to mm -hmm. say he's mean-minded and stupid, and um, he's just belittling an argument because he's upset. It sounds like he's upset more than anything else. It doesn't sound like it's actually a well-thought-through argument at all. No, I mean... It, it it's a soundbite. It's you know, I'm, you know, put if the interviewers throw me a question. I've got a quick, sharp answer that I'll put that I'll put through the interviewer off his feet, and I did through the interviewer off his feet. Yeah. The interviewer was completely stunned. Sure. Could the same thing be said about the flying spaghetti monster? Is that just another one of those? You know, throw something. Oh yeah, out the there? FSM. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, my students love the flying spaghetti monster. Um, they have not got the. The incredible thing of 1415 is the flan spaghetti monster, for anybody who's listening and thinks we've all just lost our minds, if they haven't heard of the flan spaghetti monster, it's a, it's a parody religion. It's a, an attempt to make fun of religion. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, well, you know, Christians are going to believe in their God and Muslims believe in their God. But religion's so silly, we might as well say we believe in flying spaghetti monsters. Mm -hmm. um, my students don't see the parody at all. They don't care about the parody. They just think this is really funny and, you know, that's... You know, it's just something they make jokes about pastafarians and all these sorts of things and and uh, it's very humorous but it's just uh, whenever it's advanced as a critique of religion um you're just assuming that religion has blind faith and that nobody's thought that so anybody who's religious hasn't really put any thought into what they're worshiping mm -hmm. and um it's just really a very crude insult when it's applied on that level mm -hmm. i do have to say i think one of the funniest things that that that's happened to me really since I wrote it because you'll know, have an atheist getting angry that I've misrepresented the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they're, they're really quite irate, you know, this, this, this isn't what the flying spaghetti monster means. And, uh, you know, if you actually read the book, I say the point seems to be in italics because this is very much undergraduate humor. I mean, you're not, you <laughs> I think they're trying to make a point and then they've got lost somewhere along the way and decided to, you know, um, call themselves pastafarians and have religious rituals where they, you know, put a colander on their head and bash it with a wooden spoon. They do all sorts of silly things. Um, but I've been accused of misrepresenting. I mean, that's not really what the Flying Spaghetti Monster is about. And I you know, I wasn't sure there was a canonical version of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. I, I didn't really realize it was taken that seriously in atheist circles. But yeah, if you if you look at how you know, Richard Dawkins uses the flying spaghetti monster, he's quite explicit. He says, "No, this is just um, uh, you know, people who are religious believe things on blind faith, and so you might as well have a religion which worships a flying spaghetti monster or which believes there's a a, a teapot orbiting the sun. You know, you just believe things on blind faith if you're religious. You know, if you can't prove it's not true, you might as well believe in it. And so that's how Dawkins uses the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, and that was used on the, the Flying Spaghetti Monsters website as well. They were quite chuffed that Richard Dawkins had noticed and mentioned it. And, uh, yeah, it's just a case of belittling religion. And the other thing about the Flying Spaghetti Monster is the second, you know, if you're a Christian, and the second you begin a conversation with, well, here's the difference between believing in God and believing in a Flying Spaghetti Monster. The second that you say that, you're saying, well, hang on, if you have to defend yourself against that sort of accusation, how can I take anything you say seriously? 
you know, you just sound like your beliefs in very silly company. And it, it, it's a very, you know, it, it, it did have a big impact. You know, it, it, it did seem to convince a lot of atheists that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, we're right to be atheists because, you know, religious people do believe silly things like that. Um, and, and, you know, on, on a popular level, it did have a big impact. Maybe not so much. I mean, I don't see it having a long lasting life because my students now here are 14, 15. Um, they just think that they don't see it as a critique of religion at all. You know, they don't feel see that. I mean, obviously, religion isn't like that to them, but they do now. They, they, they do seem to think, well, here's something that's kind of silly and funny and something you can make jokes about. Mm. So, but yeah, it did have that effect. And for a lot of people now, they do seem to be quite emotionally attached to this argument. Yeah, they like it, <laughs> and there's a way to really. I mean, you 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 do mention quite a few ways that they do parody, you know, they come up with these kind of the emperor and his new clothes and the flying spaghetti monster and um, I'm trying to think what the other one was now. <laughs> just, there's the invisible uh, pink unicorn, yeah. the flying spaghetti monster. Um, oh, there's a number of different ones actually, yes, oh, you, you could so lose count very quickly. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. Oh, the celestial teapot. <laughs> That's right, Celestial Teapot. Yep, yeah. Celestial Teapot, that, that's that been reinvented, yep. Yeah. So it's out there too. What, what's well. that one about? Do you have time to tell us what that one's about? <laughs> celestial Teapot, it, uh, it, they haven't really milked this one for all it's worth, but the, 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 the original idea was that Burton and Russell said, well, you know, um, if I was to tell you right now that there's a teapot orbiting the sun, you would tell me you didn't believe me, even though you couldn't prove it not true. I mean, you, you can't get up there with a telescope, look around and find out that there isn't one. He says, but if you, if you, if I was to tell you that a holy book said that there's a, there's a, a celestial t- a teapot orbiting the sun, well, all of a sudden you take that belief much more seriously. You know, you might say, well, you know, if, if Muslims believe or Hindus believe there's a teapot orbiting the sun, maybe we shouldn't, you know, ridicule that belief. And, and Russell's argument was there's a double standard. Well, I mean, the simple reply to that would be is, well, actually, nobody's believing anything just because a book happens to say it. What people are believing is, well, I, for example, trust Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ lived such a moral life and there's evidence that he was resurrected and that he claimed to be the son of God. And this all makes sense and there's good historical evidence. And Jesus trusted the Bible. Therefore, I will trust Jesus' testimony. So it's a belief in testimony and trusting someone's testimony. You know, a religious person isn't believing something just because they happen to read it in the Bible. They're saying, well, I've got reason to trust this testimony. Therefore, I'm going to go with the belief that, uh, say, you know, King David, um, son Absalom rebelled against him. You know, I, I'm not going to find that confirmed in any other historical record, given how the, the gaps in ancient history that we have in terms of testimony. But, you know, Jesus trusted the Bible. I'll trust the Bible. Therefore, I'll go with that. So that's where the celestial teapot immediately you know, came from in, in in the past. Well, that's not jazzy enough for for the, the modern audiences. So they came up with a flying spaghetti monster. You know, you might as well believe that a flying spaghetti monster made the universe. Uh, and if I told you that, you wouldn't believe me. But if I said that was in the holy book, you might believe me. And that was the parody of religion. Hmm. Then you've got the invisible pink unicorn. But uh, I think they haven't made enough out of the idea of people worshipping a celestial teapot or a celestial teacup. You know, you, you know, they do. This comes up from time to time. You know, um, it's just an alternative to the invisible unicorn or the flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm. But I think the teacup, with it being so English, you know, and uh, being so <laughs> polite, I think you know, a group of people worshipping a teapot, they should have made much more money out of this. Well, well. Uh, <laughs> 
I can only agree. I can only agree. I'm sitting here sipping on my tea as we speak uh, for the sound for the sound bite. That's it. Thank you so much. <laughs> the merchandising opportunities here are immense. <laughs> uh, 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 and they just have not tapped into this market at all. So I think we've missed a trick here. The, 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 the pasta and the meatballs just not, it doesn't, doesn't have the same ring to it as somebody, you know, uh, sipping from tea. That's right. And if they do pick up on this idea, I want a percentage. <laughs> So um, but that, that, yeah, that, that's the celestial teapot. Right, right. No, I, I hadn't. Heard, I, I'm aware of who. Um, yes, of course, uh, who um, Russell is. But I hadn't heard that argument before. So I, I, I like that one because I'm a tea drinker. But um, one other question, and I guess it's two questions rolled into one that I have for you, uh, Graham, is that um, do discussions around atheism provide opportunities for evangelism? And I guess part two of that is. How do we reach young people that have been so drenched in, you know, the modern, or I'm, I'm going to keep saying the postmodern world that we live in? So I guess it's a double-pronged question. Um, you know, do we have opportunities to reach people if we talk about atheism with them? Yeah, well, you, we, there's actually a tremendous opportunity here. I imagine it's the same for your yourselves. In, in Northern Ireland, there's a, there's there's the reluctance to talk about religion. People who you know maybe aren't used to church find it a strange and alien environment to go into. But I first picked this up with the Da Vinci Code. You know, going right right back before the New Atheism of the Da Vinci Code, uh, people might not go to church, but if you put on that we're going to talk about the Da Vinci Code tonight, all of a sudden people would be there who were never there before. And especially if you address it in terms of, well, it's just going to be a lecture or a talk, people would come in. If you were to talk about, well, you know, we're going to talk about the new atheism or we're going to talk about flying spaghetti monsters or we're going to address the atheist arguments, um, you'll get a few atheists to come in. You'll especially get atheists now if you're going to have a debate. You know, if, you, if you organize a debate, that's actually a very good way of... I would say evangelism. It is just an ordinary debate as well. But if you want to get your message across to these groups, debate. You know, we're not going to do a talk to you. We're going to have a discussion with you where you will have an equal platform. Uh, and yeah, you will get a discussion and you will be able to get the message across. So you do a debate that way. But if a church says, well, we're going to respond to Richard Dawkins tonight, people who aren't comfortable walking into a church will come in for that. It's a bit more neutral. It's not as pressured. You know, they don't feel that they're coming in to, you know, maybe have a track thrown at them or anything like that. It, it takes a bit of the sting um, or a wee bit of the, the, the cultural fear out of church. And, and so it's a tremendous way of saying, well, look, we're going to, tonight we're going to look at the arguments against Christianity and give our response. And people can come in just to listen. So there's a tremendous opportunity in talking to atheism to reach people who aren't actually you are atheists, but who are maybe just what we call nuns. You know, whenever they fill in the census form, they don't say atheist, they don't say Christian, they say none. I don't belong to anything. And I think that now ties into the second part of your question, Garth. You know, we are in a more sort of postmodern era or hypermodern or whatever way you want to describe it, where people are just uncomfortable with the whole idea of belief. Um, it's a very English latitudinarian sort of approach. This, you know, you, just, you, know, you, you don't believe anything. You know, you just you don't, don't don't have a strong opinion, uh, whatever you do. Um, and, and this is just where a lot of people are, and they're thinking they don't really want to identify with atheism. They don't really want to identify with 
with Christianity. You know, they're uncomfortable. And I think a lot of these big belief systems seem a bit threatening and involve a lot of commitment and they shy away from them. Um, and I think we're, if, you're, if we're talking to groups like that, you know, one way is to say, well, look, you know, tonight we're not just going to talk about what we believe. You know, what we're going to do is we're going to address arguments against Christianity. And we're going to talk, for example, like Stephen Fry. So, you know, a church does a service, you know, um, responding to Stephen Fry or a lecture talking to Stephen about Stephen Fry's, you know, problem of evil. People are a little bit easier, a little bit more comfortable talking about that. But generally what I have often found, you know, what I really truly believe from, from working with young people, um, I have seen young people who would fall you know, flat category into the nun, you know, just right in there in the nuns, you know, no real strong church background in terms of family or belief or anything like that, um, and quite tough, cynical characters who will come to hear the most, you know, the hard-bitten, die-hard fundamentalist preacher come to talk for five minutes at a wee school event to invite people to the church. They will come and listen to that guy. Because they know him. And that guy has taken the time to get to know them and has put on youth events for them uh, and maybe has had time for them when nobody else had. And yes, we have to address people's arguments. And I think that's something that we're missing. But we need to be very careful we don't throw babies out with bathwater here. Um, uh, The bottom line is that unless people in the church are genuinely getting to know young people and have time for young people, not seeing them, not just, just to evangelize them, you know, yes, we have a concern for people's souls, and that's very, very important, and a concern about salvation, and that's what the whole thing's about. But also just because we like them, and we think they're worth getting to know. You know, if we can't start with with um, getting to know people because we need to get to know them because they're worth getting to know, then the whole thing, you, you, God sent us on to die for them, therefore they're worth getting to know. We need to demonstrate that belief, get to know people, uh, and developing you know, good, strong friendships, good, strong relationships, bearing with people when other people have given up on them. We need to keep that right at the heart of what we do. We can't throw babies out with bathwater. And I, 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 you know, yes, I believe that we don't do enough to answer hard questions. And a lot of, if you, if a young person asks you a difficult question and says, you know, why should I believe in God if there's suffering in the world? And you turn around and you say to that young person, listen, you just believe. What that young person actually hears you saying is, I don't have time for you and your concerns. I don't have time for you and your questions. So answering sceptical questions is actually a way of demonstrating to people, yeah, I'm listening to you and you know what you think matters to me, particularly young people. So yes, we need to develop good, strong answers. But if we just focus on dry academic debate, the whole thing's just going to collapse on us. We need to be able to deal with debate. We need to be able to deal with difficult questions. But at the center of the gospel is a concern for the person. And if we forget that, we're in, we're in very, very serious trouble. I think I agree, because if you don't, you move into what I call taking scalps, just uh, uh, evangelizing yep. for the sake of it. And um, uh, and I know that you, you know people could criticize me for saying just that, but you know just for the sake of it rather than seeing the person um, be, be behind the question, as you just said, and um, I, I have known people who would go out there and 
and uh, all they were after was a decision and not really interested in listening to the person or treating them like a person, but just give me that decision. Um, here's the facts. Um, just say yes or no. And then if it was a no, they'd move on to the next person because I di didn't have time for them. And um, I consider it sort of uh, scalp uh, taking. So I'm really glad to hear um, that mm -hmm. you, you also consider that we need to consider the person behind the question that we're dealing with flesh and uh, blood people just like ourselves. And let's be honest, many is a, many of us have come from sceptical backgrounds ourselves. So let, let's yep. use a bit of empathy and uh, treat people uh, how we would like to be treated and be given the time. Now, obviously, there will be people who will just want to disrupt or um, they're out to uh, take one down. Um, and obviously, they need to be given a very, very short shift. But yes, no, I think um, it, there are ways of reaching people. And I, I happen to agree with what you've just said. But um, Andy, do you have anything else you wanted to cover? Um, you know, this is not really something that I plan to ask, but it, it occurs mm. to me because, um, you know, Graham talked about how he is a high school teacher. And I just wondered, you know, I mean, for all those teachers who are perhaps Christian and they find themselves in a situation, I mean, they may be professors at university, they may be, you know, whatever it might be, but they're given a curriculum where they have to teach uh, the theory of evolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how open is it in Ireland, for example, to be able to share both theories? Um, or is it, I mean, is it quite awkward? So it's just, I'm just wondering how teachers get past this, especially where they have this, this issue with belief versus what they are now having to teach. Uh, in Northern Ireland, actually, it's, it's, it's actually very open here, believe it or not. Um, so if you were, to, a guy that I would have, um, Partly one of the reasons I'm interested in online atheism was a guy who was an Ulster humanist who I encountered on a, a BBC blog. And um, this question came up about should we be allowed to discuss evolution in science class? Mm. Or sorry, should we be allowed to discuss creationism when we are talking about evolution in science class? And, and, the, word, and the context was, you know, the, you know, the sort of seven-day creationism, you know, the, the, you know, the, the full-blooded seven-day creationism that... that that you know Dawkins would be absolutely horrified at you know we would drag people out and, and Dawkins uh, at the time had there was a guy who had said that um, if, if a child is a creationist in class so a guy who addressed um, he was the part of the Royal Society if I remember correctly mm -hmm. and he was in charge of education and somebody said if a, if, a, if a child in a class says he's a creationist what do I do and this guy who as I understand it was an atheist himself said whatever you do don't ridicule the child you don't tell the child that's wrong. Talk about evidence. You're trying to get them to think like scientists. Um, I think the man's name was Michael Reese. I could be wrong there. You need to check that. But uh, the poor fellow gave a very good answer and had to resign because Dawkins and his friends turned on him. And um, he, he just felt this wasn't worth the hassle and resigned. But it was a very open answer. Now, there were discussions about this on, on in Northern Ireland on, on this BBC blog, and this guy who would be one of the you know the, the Belfast Ulster humanists was also a school teacher, and you know this guy was sort of you know back in the nineteen sixties was an atheist in Northern Ireland, but nobody was an atheist in Northern Ireland, you know, very few people. And his answer was, of course, you should be allowed to discuss creationism in class. Yeah. If a child asks a question, you answer the question. Um, and if a teacher, you know, the teacher should be free to take the class whatever way they want to go. 
In Northern Ireland, we just don't like anybody telling us how we should think or what we should talk about. The second that anybody pops their head up and says, now you must do A, B and C, we'll say, "That's oh, is that right? Well, we're going to do X, Y and Z just to spite you. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're not into this being told what to do. Yeah. But this is just good comments. And this was coming from a guy who was a humanist. Hmm. Um, and he made the point that when he was teaching politics, his some of his best students were Christians because he was quite open about his atheism. Mm-hmm. And what he found was is the Christian students were, were, were forced to say, well, we're, we're going to find reasons to, to, to say why you're wrong. And it created debate and discussion, and that was good for class. Mm-hmm. And you know, this was coming from a humanist. Wow. So this is coming from, so we, we, have a diff, we have a slightly different attitude in Northern Ireland. There'd be a few people who would sort of want you to kick the creationists out. But generally, we would take the more common sense approach of, it is so difficult to get teenagers engaged. If you find a hook, use it. Right. So there would be that common sense approach. Mm. And with religious education, I mean, it, it's very good here in that really the way that um, I follow group AQ, a curriculum AQA run in England. And really what I do is that I, I teach Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, in one sense, you could take a large chunk of my curriculum and teach it in a Sunday school. Um I then compare it to a secular alternative. So you have to say, well, here's what a secularist would say about um, issues like abortion. Here's what a secular response would be to these issues as well. Right. So that you compare the two and one other religion, hmm. you know, um, one other religious approach. Okay. And so it's always compare, contrast, discuss. Right. Um, compare, contrast, discuss, a debate. Uh, and that creates a, a, a much more open-minded um, and tolerant and... Uh, you know, interesting lesson. Whereas, if you're prepared to just say, "Well, you know, well, look, you know, there's only one thing you're allowed to discuss in class," that just shuts, shuts discussion down. So, and there'd also be a lot of evangelical Christians um, in teaching in Northern Ireland as well, um, and the Roman Catholic community too. There, a lot of people would be quite religious. Tend to you tend towards teaching. Teaching seems a good thing over here. Um, it, it's seen as something that, you know, if, particularly amongst Christian communities, this is something that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to help children, uh, to, to raise children, to help children develop their minds. So generally in Northern Ireland, it would, you know, we would have a very, we like debate, we like discussion. Mm-hmm. And generally the consensus here would be if, if you can get debate and discussion going in class, go for it you know um, we're not really going to have a we're not really going to hammer you now how long that continues for i don't know because richard dawkins now is basically he's now saying we have to protect children from religious belief and Mm -hmm. and how long we can maintain this for i don't know but at the minute things are good here oh that's good yeah no it's interesting because i think in different places I, i personally don't recall ever being taught creationism as a an option at school um although they didn't really, you know, uh, discuss at length um, evolution that I can recall. But um, I, I think it was just that was the curriculum and that's what you're given, you know, so it was quite interesting. But anyway, we, we, don't do it, we don't do it in science, we do it in religious education. You know, in religious education, you, 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 look at the, you, you would look at the options and, and that would be, you know, I, I think a lot of people are quite comfortable with that. You know, yeah. I don't think anybody would be, it's not on the science curriculum, right. but it is on most good religious education curriculums. We'll say, well, look, here's, you know, your different options. Yeah, and sure. also the different, you know, theistic evolution, progressive creation, you, you go through all the options. Right. 
Interesting. Over to you, G. Alrighty, well, we've been speaking to Graham Veal about his book, New Atheism, A Survival Guide. So, Graham, can you tell us where people can find your book, please? Well, it's it's on Amazon. Um, mm-hmm. You can also go to saintsandskeptics.org. Um, so www.saintsandskeptics.org. Uh, there's a, 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 there's a, a little link at the very top of that page. It'll take you directly to my book. So it's an Amazon Christian, so by Christian Focus Publications as well. So Amazon or saintsandskeptics.org or um, Christian Focus Publications. And Saints and Skeptics is uh, your website and obviously where people can contact you if they want to know yep. more. Absolutely. It's Skeptics with a C, um, okay. not the Americans. Well, I think American Skeptics get through as well with a K, but generally it's spelled, we spell it with a C over here. Okay. Well, we'll put the link to that on our in the show notes for this show. Well, Graham, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering maybe if we could um, get you back sometime in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to do it. That would be great. It's been really great to chat to you, um, Graham, and I look forward to chatting to you again. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> See you soon. Thanks All so right. much. God bless. God bless. Best. Thank you. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. Yeah. I think it's, is that Andy back? No. Nope. No, I'll, try, I'll try her again. How much time do you have, Graham? Oh, take as long as you need. Great, take okay. as long as you need. Thank you. We're Irish, time doesn't really <laughs> Yes, I always tease these guys too about being on African time because it's a different, <laughs> it's a whole, whole actually, different world. The Africans are worse than us, actually. They are, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah they really are. Yeah. They just threw the clock out all together. Yes. And when you, um, I've had to learn because uh, I've been working with uh, another of our co-hosts, an Africana guy as well. And um, uh-huh. oh, sorry, Andy's not Africana, but he is an Africana guy. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I had to learn what um, just now means. And because you know, if I said to you, uh, uh, Graham, I'll be back, and we'll do it just now. Well, to them, uh-huh. that that's not just now. That could be that that that. That time stretches. That could be. Yeah. Oh no. Oh yeah. No, he's a big thing. <laughs> right. And so what I learnt from them is if you. Hello. Hello. Are you back Hello, now? Now. Hello. <laughs> yeah. I found you. I found you. Okay. Well, we we were hiding, but you found us. I noticed. Yeah. I was just explaining uh, African time and well, Africana time, and I had to learn what just now, just now, and what now now is. Right. So yeah, now now right. means we're doing it now. In Aussie terms. Almost now, almost. See, that's what I mean. See, I still haven't got it. Now, now means now, you know, but now, now Uh is almost now. And just now will be in just a little while. Yes, but that can (laughs) can stretch. Almost now. But that can stretch. (laughs) I like this. I'm going to promote this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I've been trying to get someone to do this for ages. All problems. So there's nine, which is... Now, now, almost now, and just now. Okay, that's brilliant. That's my life sorted out. Good. 
There we go. Oh, no, no, please don't join them. I'm, I'm trying to get away from it. But, but <laughs> I thought, see, I, I was under the impression now now means, like, right this second, we're doing it. No. Oh, we'll see, I don't That's know. Now. And we've been doing this for if four years. Dictionary, if you look in the dictionary, now means immediate. Now. You guys don't use the English dictionary, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Yeah, welcome oh, to our world, Graham. I'm so glad. Oh no, that, that, that <laughs> the Irish must have been at the Ready Africa at some stage because this is just how we I think. think. We just yeah. don't have words for it. 